You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast. Today's message is brought to you by our pastor and teaching elder, Adam Vincent. Thessalonians chapter 1. Before we get into the actual text, I want to give you a little bit of an introduction to this letter. Um, You'll remember that we did come out of chapter 5. This is the last that they would have heard from Paul. So just to kind of recap those last few verses that we looked at. Paul prayed for what we called comprehensive sanctification. He says in verse 23 of chapter 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The instruction that Paul's giving them to them there is he's praying for them to be sanctified in all aspects of life. It's not just that he wants part of them to be sanctified. He wants them sanctified completely. All aspects of their life. And we told, I told you that it wasn't so much that he was trying to give us a, a dissertation on whether we're made up of three or made up of two when it comes to body, soul, and spirit. It's that he just wants to communicate, I want all aspects of you sanctified. That God is not done with you until every aspect, both outwardly and inwardly, you have become like Christ. And so he says, I'm praying for this for you. And then he calls for support for his ministry by telling them to make sure that this letter is, this letter is read Um, And they apply what they are hearing from him in 1 Thessalonians. We come to 2 Thessalonians now. It was written probably from the exact same place that 1 Thessalonians was written. For those of you that were with us when we started 1 Thessalonians, we said that Paul was in Corinth, that he was with um, Silas and Timothy there doing ministry, and that he wrote the letter from Corinth. This letter is, is not that far behind 1 Thessalonians. So this comes pretty quickly right after 1 Thessalonians. They are most likely still in Corinth because this is the last time that we see these three in ministry in the same physical location. So the fact that he starts off 2 Thessalonians, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, as though they're all three there together, it's strong support for the fact that this comes from Corinth, just like 1 Thessalonians. Um, It's probably in response to... Either Timothy or somebody else who was responsible for the errand of taking First Thessalonians to the church, they would have then come back to Paul with further update about how the church was doing. Remember, Paul writes First Thessalonians partly due to the response that he got from Timothy when Timothy just went to visit. Remember, Paul tried to get there. Satan wouldn't allow it. Satan blocked his path. Timothy did make it to Thessalonica, and he brought back report. Paul says, I'm encouraged by what Timothy has to say about what's going on. Here's some instruction about the things that you asked me about. Now we get another response from somebody who brings information back. We're not told exactly, did Timothy deliver the letter? Uh, Did somebody else deliver the letter? But we do have in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 11, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. So in some way, Paul gets information about what's going on at this church. Again, most likely, whoever delivered 1 Thessalonians has returned to Paul and probably brings the most up-to-date information about the church. So 1 Thessalonians addresses old information. Now Paul has delivered the letter, the deliverer comes back, and now he feels compelled to write another letter because there's new information that he has that needs to be addressed. Some concerns that are addressed in 2 Thessalonians, if you're taking notes. The first, that there's worry that the day of the Lord had come. Paul gets information back from the church where they, uh, the report is that they are worrying 
that the day of the Lord has already come, that Jesus has returned, and that they were left out of it. And so they're troubled over this fact. They're troubled over their eschatology. They're troubled over their hope of Jesus returning because there's false teaching circulating that Jesus has already come back, and you missed it. Secondly, there's laziness over not understanding Jesus' return. Some in the church have resorted to that laziness that we've already talked about because they believe that Jesus has already come or he's about to come, and so they've quit jobs and they're not taking care of their responsibilities. And then lastly, there's a concern by Paul for steadfastness in the midst of persecution. Steadfastness in the midst of persecution. Persecution continues to rise on this church. It continues to increase on this church. And Paul has strong uh, concern that this church make it. That this church persevere, get through this persecution, and come out on the other side of it, the better for it. Some themes of the letter that we see running through these short three chapters. I'm oh, sorry. Anybody else need notes? They didn't get notes? Okay. Number one, the coming of Jesus is an anticipated or a welcomed event for those that are in Christ. The first thing that we see is that the coming of Jesus is a welcomed event. It's an anticipated event. It's a good thing for those that are in Christ. Secondly, the coming of Jesus is an unwelcomed or a sudden surprise for those not in Christ. We continue to see, we saw this some in 1 Thessalonians, we see it again in 2 Thessalonians. Two aspects to Jesus' return. It's good for some people, it's bad for others. It's, it's a welcomed thing for some people, it's an unwelcomed thing for others. And we see that dual head in 2 Thessalonians as well. Two views, two perspectives on what it'll be like when Jesus returns. Before Jesus returns, apostasy apostasy and the man of lawlessness will come apostasy that's a-p-o-s-t-a-s-y apostasy and the man of lawlessness a lot of times known as the antichrist will come paul gives them assurance that jesus has not returned because there's still events that had not happened had not happened at least at that time had not happened yet and so it gave them assurance that hey day of the Lord has not come yet because these things have not happened yet. The apostasy, the, the turning of the turning from the faith, the abandonment of the faith in massive, massive amounts, massive numbers, that has not happened and the man of lawlessness has not come yet. When Jesus returns, this theme runs through scripture as well, or this uh, book, when Jesus returns, he will bring defeat, justice, and wrath upon unbelievers. He will bring defeat, justice, and wrath upon unbelievers. And then number five, until Jesus returns, be on guard and be faithful. Be on guard and be faithful. So just like in 1 Thessalonians, Paul turns our attention to the future, gives us information and knowledge and truth about the future, but just like he did in 1 Thessalonians, he draws our attention back to the here and now. Be on guard. Be faithful. Take care of your responsibilities now. That time is not here yet. we got both aspects again in 2 Thessalonians, the future and the present. The outline of the letter, we can see um, 
first of all, and this kind of works in reverse chronological order. So he starts with the revelation of Christ, the day that Jesus will return, the rebellion of the Antichrist is B, and then C, the responsibility of Christians. The revelation of Christ, when he comes to put an end to all things, he talks about that first in this letter. Then he works towards talking about the rebellion of the Antichrist, and then he concludes with the responsibility of Christians. So if we were to look at it in chronological order, we would say as Christians we have responsibility, the rebellion of the Antichrist is coming, and then Jesus will return to put an end to all things. And then I want to draw your attention to the very end of this book before we get started. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, <clears throat> this was probably a wake-up call by the time whoever was reading this letter to the, to the local church. They probably would have had this letter delivered. The elders would have stood up in the church and probably read this aloud to the church. You might have had people nodding off and not paying attention. And then it would have been a serious thing when you come to the end of this letter. So I'm going to do you the favor of reading it up front. So that as we study through this book, we don't get to the end and you say, oh, the past few months were pretty important. It says in verse 13 of chapter 3, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, <clears throat> take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In this passage, Paul gives instruction again about church discipline, that if you've got people in the church who don't allow false teaching that's circulating to be corrected, if you don't have people who yield to the truth of what this letter says, he says, you remove them from your fellowship. You have nothing to do with them. Don't allow them to influence you and hold you back from doing what this letter has to say. Don't treat them as an enemy. Don't abandon them and, 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 and have nothing to do with them to the point that they are an enemy to you. But you, you, you remove them from your fellowship and you treat them as someone who needs the gospel, basically. Someone who needs salvation. Someone who needs to be removed from the fellowship because they're dangerous. Warn him as a brother. And we'll get into more of what that means when we get to chapter 3 and conclude this book sometime this year, probably. Now, getting into the text, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 today. So let's read that. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and Silvanus is just the, the other name for Silas, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith. In all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are doing. As we look at verses 1 through 4 today, I want us to focus in on the fact that we have a responsibility to grow until Jesus returns. Grow until Jesus returns. Before he gets into any type of eschatology discussion here with this church, he calls attention to their growth. He commends them for their growth and continues to encourage that growth to take place in their life. Growing until Jesus returns. In your notes there, number one, spiritual growth is rooted in the work of God. Spiritual growth, if it's to happen in our life, it's absolutely rooted in the work of God in our life. 
that we don't grow absent from God doing something in us. We can't just uh, decide to grow on our own and in our own effort and our own attempts increase our faith and increase our love and begin to do good works out of our own initiative, out of our own efforts, and, and grow spiritually. It's not how it works. Paul, in First Thessalonians, he has a very similar introduction. We talked about this uh, when we first got into this, uh, into these two letters. But he says, to the churches of to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He draws attention to the fact that they are alive spiritually because they are in God the Father and in God Jesus Christ. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we're saved, we're brought into relationship with our Heavenly Father. We are brought into relationship with the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We are indwelt by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We are in God through salvation. And because of that relationship, the next thing that he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are blessed spiritually. So we're alive spiritually because of God, and we are blessed spiritually with grace and peace that flows from being in that relationship. So because we've been saved, because we've been brought into relationship with God, we receive grace, grace that brings us into that relationship, grace that saves us, and as a result of that grace, we get peace with God. Peace flows from that grace, and that's the essence of the gospel. Paul begins this letter with what the gospel basically is. The fact that God has bestowed grace on us and brought us into a peaceful relationship with him once again. But because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are born enemies of God. But because of God's grace, we are rescued from that and given peace with God. So uh, an introduction that's easy to read over, but there's a lot of truth in verses 1 through 2. Number two, spiritual growth is a response to prayer. Spiritual growth is a response to prayer. He says in verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. He draws on the fact that he has an obligation to praise God for the church's growth. Now, it'd be easy to say, well, of course Paul's obligated to, to praise God for their growth because God's the source of our growth. We just said that. I mean, it's because they're in God, it's because God gives them grace and gives them peace that they can grow. So there's obligation there for Paul to praise God and, and, and give credit to God because this church has grown. But what's another reason that we might would say that he has obligation to praise God for this? Based on what we talked about in First Thessalonians. You might think of it. Yeah, it's what he prayed for. This is a direct answer to prayer for what he said, I'm praying about for you guys. I'm praying that your faith will increase. I'm praying that your love will increase. And so he's about to highlight the fact that those two things have happened. Their faith has grown. Their love has grown. And so he starts off by saying, I'm obligated to do this. Now, some commentators have suggested that this is a cold response by Paul saying, I have to do this. Like, there's not a whole lot here to praise you guys for, but because of my responsibility to God, I have to praise you for this. I don't see that at all. I see him saying, I have to do this because I prayed for this. 
How could I not give credit to God for this when I desired this to happen in you guys and I prayed for it to happen in you guys. And now that Timothy, whoever delivered the letter, has come back and told me more about what's happened there, I'm seeing that my prayers have been answered. You guys are increasing in your faith. Your love is increasing. I've got to give credit to God for this. In 1 Thessalonians 3, just to kind of highlight those prayers again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5 for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter attempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. This talks about how he was already comforted. But then in verse 10 as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is still lacking in your faith. Paul says, I'm praying, I'm comforted and excited about what I've already heard, but there's more that needs to happen in your life, and I'm praying for that. Verse 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. But Dan's right, he prays for this. He's laboring in prayer that their faith and their love would increase, and now he's heard that yes, that's happened. And so he feels obligated and says, I have to praise God for this because this is a direct answer to my prayers. What's he specifically thankful for? First of all, he's specifically thankful for what he says in um, the end of verse 3. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So first of all, he's thankful for growing faith. Now, the Greek word here for growing faith, it, it means to grow beyond expectation. Like, it's gone further than I ever could have expected it to. So it's not just, oh, there's been some minimal growth here. Um, I'm going to praise God for that. It's that he gets this report back and he's like, unbelievable. Like, I can't believe you guys have grown so much in your faith. This is a testimony to God's work in your life. It's a testimony to God's work in your life. It's not like he walks out. Every day because he's planted a seed and he's, and he's barely seeing a little bit of growth. And he's like, oh, there, there I see some evidence of growth there. It's that he gets reports back and he's like, I can't believe how much this has grown. Me and Tyson, when we were at Mount Gilead, we used to talk about the fact that the, the bushes outside the building there, they would chop them down. I forget, at some point during the year, they would chop them down. And you wouldn't realize it, but you'd come, you'd show up one day, and you felt like these things are huge again. Like they have grown so fast overnight. Like it blows my mind that we can cut them down and they grow so quickly. That's the picture that Paul has here. He says, you've grown beyond expectation. You've grown so fast in your faith. I have to give credit to God for this. This isn't man-generated. This isn't man's effort to grow in a knowledge of God. This is a direct result of what God has done in your life. You're growing beyond expectation. And the picture is, the Greek word there is a picture of a plant, a flourishing plant. But he's not only thankful for their increase in faith, he's thankful that their love of every one of you has increased as well. That their love is increasing for each other. It's not just that they have an increase in knowledge of who God is. That knowledge is translated to a life of love and service to each other. The growing faith has a picture of a plant, the Greek picture for the increasing love. And it is the exact same word used in 1 Thessalonians 3.12 where he prays for their love to increase. I think he specifically uses that same word to say your love has increased. 
he, he ties that again back to his prayer and says, what I prayed for in chapter 3, verse 12, is what we are getting now, an increase in love. But the picture of the increasing love is more like a flood. You have the flourishing plant growing up in its relationship to God, growing in its knowledge and faith to who God is. The love is spreading outward like a flood, like a river that is overflowing and spreading into the land. That's the picture that he gives for their abounding love, their increasing love. And he's thankful for this. He's praising God for this. He says, I'm obligated to do this because I prayed for it. And then verse 4, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This word for steadfastness, it means they're remaining faithful. Not passively. It's not that they're just kind of sitting in a corner and, and weathering the storm. It has more the picture that they are overcoming these difficulties. It has the picture that they are allowing these difficulties to be used in their life for good purposes. They're not just weathering the storm and saying, well, it's going to get better eventually. Surely God's going to come back around and make things work out better for us than they're working out right now. It's that they're actually allowing the difficult times to produce something in their life. They're overcoming what maybe Satan means for bad, difficulties to try to destroy their faith. They're allowing those difficulties to increase their faith. So they're overcoming it. They're being steadfast in it. Does anybody see a word that's maybe missing here that was present in 1 Thessalonians in that introduction? Remember, we talked about uh, Paul praising them for the increase of their faith and love. But there's a, there's a word that's missing here that was present in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Hope's not there. You still have the steadfastness, because remember we talked about increasing faith and growing love and a steadfastness of hope in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here, we've got growing faith and increasing love, and it just says steadfastness. But the word hope is missing there, and I think it's intentional by Paul. Because as we've said, this church is beginning to believe that the day of the Lord has already come. So he has intentions to address their faulty hope. Or their confused hope. He still praises them for their steadfastness. It's not that they're thinking about walking away from the faith. It's not that they've lost their hope. It's that their hope's gotten confused a little bit. So he doesn't praise them and say, I'm I'm praising God that you have right hope. He says, I praise you for your steadfastness. It's not in the right hope. And we're going to fix that here in, in, in a minute. But I do praise you for your steadfastness. You are remaining faithful in the midst of persecutions and difficulties and trials. And you're to be commended for that. And ultimately, that's credit given back to God, that God is working this endurance. And some of the verses that we read earlier today talked about the fact that it's God who works that endurance in his saints. So he gives credit to God for this. Number three, not only is spiritual growth rooted in the work of God, not only is it a response to prayer, it's the fruit of difficult times. Spiritual growth happens after we go through difficult times. It's a result. It's the fruit of difficult times. And we've seen that in some lengthy passages already today. That God works trials and tribulations and difficulties to test our faith, to show our faith to be true, to increase our faith, to grow our faith, to challenge our faith, so that we come out on the other side better for it. 
Paul's boasting here, and I think this is important to note, it's not grounded in attendance numbers. It's not grounded in giving amounts. It's not grounded in new buildings. It's not grounded in music style. It's not even grounded in a zeal for a certain type of theology. It's not grounded in a casual atmosphere that this church enjoys. He's boasting that this church trusts more in Jesus every day. But isn't this what people typically ask you about? Like if they know that you're a part of a church plant, they know you're part of Sovereign Hope, these are the things that people ask about. Where do you guys meet? How many people are coming? What's your, what's your giving like? Are you guys hitting your budget? Do you all have enough finances to do what you want to do? What do you guys believe? Like do you have any type of specific theology that I need to know about? What's your atmosphere like? How do people dress when they come to your church? These are the things that people ask about when they find out you're part of a church plant. These are things that I end up finding myself talking about when people say, how are things going at your church? Sometimes I even default into saying, hey, man, things are going great. Like we've got this amount of people coming. It's a blessing that God has been, been uh, working in our people's heart to where they're giving like an unbelievable amount. Like I can't believe that we bring in the amount of money that God has blessed us with. I want to get to the point where when people ask us about our church, we say, man, things are going unbelievable. People are trusting in Jesus more every single day. The faith of the people in our church are growing constantly. That's what Paul's boasting about. He's not boasting about new buildings. He's not boasting about anything else but the fact that they are trusting in Jesus more, and it's resulting in them loving people more. That's what I want our church to be known for, not a specific theology that we believe, not our casual atmosphere, not our music style, not anything, but the fact that we're growing in our faith. We're trusting in Jesus more every single day, and we're loving others more, and it's it's spreading like a flood, the way Paul talks about. William Barclay, who's a a commentator that I've been studying some, his comments on growing faith and steadfast, steadfast faith, he says it means to be sure of Jesus more and more every day. Be more sure of Jesus tomorrow than you were today. That's the essence of growing faith. Remember we defined faith a while back as trusting truth. You should have a, a, a deeper trust in the truth of God tomorrow than you did today because you do something today that increases your faith so that tomorrow you trust him more. You should trust him today more than you did yesterday. If you're really growing in your faith, you're trusting him more every single day. And the way you do that is you learn more truth to put your trust in. That's why being in the word regularly is so important. If our only time in the word is on Sunday mornings together, you can still increase in your faith, but it's more like you're trusting Jesus more week to week than day to day. And you can go you can go from being on, on a mountain peak one week to a valley by the end of the week if you're not careful. So sometimes week to week's not good enough. We have to be trusting Jesus more day by day. I think it's interesting to note, too, that in 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about how other churches are boasting about the Thessalonica church. Remember in chapter 1? It's we're getting reports from other churches like your testimony is spread to these other churches. These other churches are boasting about you. Now, Paul's the one boasting. And this would have been unusual for him because he planted this church. It would almost come across arrogant for him to talk about how great this church is doing. Because he's kind of responsible for it from a human standpoint. But I think even in his boasting, he's giving credit to God. But he says, we're telling other churches about you guys. Like you're the example You're what we're setting up as the example for other churches that we're planting now. 
Be more like the Thessalonica church. Be more like what they're doing. Allow God to do in you what they're allowing God to do in them. We go in from 1 Thessalonians where other churches are boasting. 2 Thessalonians, Paul's reached the point where he says, I've got to boast about you. A little awkward because I helped plant that church, but I've got to boast about you because God's doing such amazing work in your midst. The church is growing in the midst of difficulty. The faith is not dying because of their difficulty. In verse 4, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. These guys aren't going through good times. That's when sometimes we do want to highlight a church. We highlight churches that are going through good times where God seems to be pouring out his blessing, increased attendance, increased giving, bigger, bigger facilities that are happening. Paul says, I'm praising you because you're being steadfast in the midst of bad times. Like things aren't going good for you guys as believers, and yet you're steadfast in your faith. Your faith is growing. It's not dying because of difficulty. If we turn to Matthew chapter 13, Paul is describing in first and second Thessalonians. He's describing the opposite of what Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 20. Jesus is given the parable of the sower and the seed. He says some seed falls on good ground, some seed falls on bad ground. Then he goes on to explain what the type of grounds mean and what the seed is. Verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfaithful. Now, essentially what's going on here, Jesus is saying, you're going to share the gospel with people. And you're going to have all kinds of responses. And they're all going to start off kind of the same. You're going to have people who respond, who maybe even get baptized, who go through your new members class, who sit down with elders, seem to pass all the tests that their conversion is genuine. But then down the road, something happens and they show themselves to be unfaithful. Whether it's tribulations, whether it's the cares of the world, it chokes out the seed. It shows that it never really took root, that their salvation was never genuine, and they abandoned the faith. Now, it's hard, it's hard for me for when, when, when we lose people from our church family. We lost people when we were at Mount Gilead in our youth group. We've lost people since we've been Sovereign Hope. We've lost individuals who responded to the gospel, who said, I want to follow Jesus. But when things got tough in their life, they said, I'm out, I'm done. Or when the cares of this world came back in, things that were temporary, things that are for the here and now came back in. They said, you know what? I choose that over following Jesus. And that's okay in the sense that Jesus said that would happen. It's not okay in the sense that we're losing people like that and people aren't responding to the gospel. But it's not, it's not something that we should find surprising. Because Jesus says this is going to happen. 
You're going to spread the seed. It's going to fall on good ground and bad ground. And the way you'll know how it fell and how it took root is whether people endure or not. And he says, you guys are enduring. You're not dying like Jesus talked about. Obviously, you guys are good soil because difficult times have come and you're remaining steadfast. You haven't walked away. You haven't given up on Jesus. He's encouraged by that. Now, you notice there it says the spiritual battle that rages through tribulation. We talked about this some at our Pizza and Theology Night on Thursday. Um, I'll try to give you some of the highlights from that evening um, in, in this next part of what I want to share with you. Jesus is describing in that passage with the parable of the sower and the seed, he's describing a spiritual battle because he talks about Satan being involved in some of the destruction of that seed. He talks about how Satan comes in and yanks it away at times. That Satan wants to destroy our faith while God wants to increase our faith. So, If you want to put in your notes there, Satan's goal in the midst of tribulation, because here's the fact. We go through difficult times. Even if, we're, even if they're not on the same level as, as our brothers and sisters overseas, we go through difficult times in America here. There's things that, that we don't desire to happen, circumstances that we don't like that happen in our life. And there's a spiritual battle that's raging in the midst of that. Satan's goal when we go through difficult times is to weaken our faith. Satan's goal to weaken our faith in difficult times. God's goal is to strengthen our faith in difficult times. And here's the irony is that Satan doesn't seem to pick up on the fact that when he appeals to God to allow saints to go through difficult times, that the reason God says yes is because he intends to use those difficult times for his glory. He uses those difficult times. So Satan comes, and we have that picture in Job, and we're going to look at Job here in just a minute, where Satan comes and says, let me do this to Job, and God says, be my guest. Because what's going to happen is, is his faith's going to be better after you do whatever you want to do. Paul has a difficulty that he prays about and says, I want this removed. This is something from Satan. God says, nope. I'm actually using Satan to buffet you to produce humility in you. Satan doesn't seem to get clued into this. That tribulation, difficulties, when it's being applied to a genuine Christian, it proves the faith to be true. Now, if they're not a Christian, it destroys their faith. They abandon the faith. They stop following Jesus. But when it's a genuine Christian, it increases their faith. If you want to turn with me back to Job Job chapter 1. Remember, Satan's goal to weaken our faith in difficult times. Satan wants a believer's faith to be grounded on God's blessing. That's what Satan wants. He wants our faith to be grounded on God's blessing in our life. So that when that blessing is removed, when good circumstances go away, our faith goes away too because we lose that foundation. If my faith is grounded on God blessing me here on this earth, anytime I go through a difficult circumstance or situation, my faith gets rattled. 
because my foundation is starting to, to be removed. God's blessing doesn't seem to be on my life anymore. He's not, he's not blessing me the way that I think he should. Satan appeals to that in Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now it's important to note that is true about Job. That is true about Job before he ever goes through this. This situation is not to produce faith necessarily in Job. It's to increase his faith. The faith is already there. Job's a believer before he goes through this. So God doesn't use difficult times to make us Christian. Okay? We have faith before we go through the difficult time. God says, if you consider Job, this is who he is. This is what's true about him. He fears me. He fears me. And Satan responds and says, verse 9, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has in your hand. Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. I believe Satan really believes here that Job only follows God, only loves God because he's blessed him. Otherwise, he wouldn't he wouldn't present this challenge. He wouldn't say, oh, take everything away and he'll curse you. He really believes that will happen. His goal is to have us have a faith that's grounded on God's blessing so that if he can remove that blessing, then our faith crumbles. God wants to strengthen our faith in difficult times. God wants us to rejoice always, trusting in his goodness towards us. He wants us to trust in his goodness in the midst of difficult times. Now, in our discussion on Thursday night with, uh, with the guys, we were trying to understand what does it mean for God to be good towards us? Because, you know, I use the analogies on the city God gives us a new building, but my principal's building burned to the ground recently in Griffin. I mean, they don't have really a good place to meet right now. That guy's been pastoring a lot longer than I have. How can God be good in both situations? How how can we trust that God is being good? Because it seems like God's inconsistent. Or it seems like events are random in our life. One guy gets a building, one guy doesn't who's a pastor of a church. But what's important for us to remember is that God's goodness is not just meant for the here and now, it's meant for the end. In my notes I put, goodness is God's favorable intent that we know he has for us. It's God's favorable intent that he has for us. In Romans 8, 28 through 30, this is what we mean when we say that God is good. In Romans 8:28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. So we cling to the promise there. All things work for good. But what does that mean for all things to work for good? Because my definition of good isn't always what I get. 
It's not always what I get in my life. I wouldn't always define what I'm getting in my life as good. But Paul goes on to expound in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What it means for God to be good is that he's got favorable intent upon you as his child. And this passage only applies to believers. It only applies to Christians. It says that God works things for good to those who love him, to those that are called by him. Which implies that there's a group of people that don't get this same type of blessing. Paul's saying that God has favorable intent. That favorable intent is that he intends to make you like Jesus. He intends to glorify you. And he'll do whatever necessary to bring you to that point. Sometimes he needs good circumstances to make you like Jesus. Sometimes he needs bad circumstances to make you like Jesus. He uses both types to make you like Jesus. So the guy in Griffin whose church just burned can still say that God is good. I can still say that God is good. Our circumstances are different, but our end goal is the same, that we will be made like Jesus. That's the hope and encouragement that you can find when your circumstances are different from somebody else's and you're thinking, why is God being good to them and not being good to me? He's being good to both because the end goal is the same. Your circumstances might be different right now, but the end goal is the same, to make you like Jesus. So we can find encouragement that when we're going through difficult times, he's still being good to us because he wants to make me like Jesus in the midst of this bad circumstance. I look over at my friend, and he's got good circumstances going on. I don't have to be jealous. I don't have to compare. Because I can say, hey, God's trying to make him like Jesus through good times right now. That's great. That's great for that guy. Can't wait till God's using good circumstances again in my life. That'll be awesome. But the end goal is still the same, to conform me to the image of Jesus. So I can trust in God's goodness in the midst of difficulty and not doubt, why is he doing this to me and not doing it to somebody else? It's he's doing the same thing in both of you. He's making you like Jesus. He's conforming you to the image of Christ. And one day he will complete that work, as Philippians 1, 6 says. If you're a believer, he starts the work in you. He will complete the work in you. God's goodness means he has favorable intent for you as his child. And that favorable intent is to make you like his son. To conform you to the image, to glorify you one day. So if that's true for this church, then they can find trust in that. They don't have to be discouraged in the midst of these persecutions. We already read Romans 8.31. He's for us, not against us. I put in my notes, why does, God, why does a good God let us suffer? That's a question that gets asked all the time. Why does a good God let his good people or his children suffer? A couple things that I wrote down. So that our faith can be revealed to others so that our faith can be revealed. We were, we were talking about God's goodness in the Garden of Eden. We said, man, God is so good in that situation because he could have killed Adam and Eve on the spot for being sinful. He could have killed them. But no, God is, God is loving. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's good. He doesn't kill them. That he kills an animal. He puts that clothing on, on Adam and Eve. But then we came back to the fact that God would have been very right and just to kill Adam and Eve. So had that situation played out differently, Adam and Eve die. 
You eat the tree, you die. God could have killed them. God would have still been loving, gracious, and merciful. But what I shared with the guys is creation wouldn't know it. Creation wouldn't know it. See, the way that we know God is love, the way that we know he's gracious and merciful is that he does things that are loving and gracious and merciful. He reveals it. If God had killed Adam and Eve, it wouldn't have mean that he wasn't gracious. wouldn't mean that he's not loving or merciful. We just wouldn't know it. He wouldn't have shown it to us. So it goes back to what we said about Job. God says, this is true about Job. He loves me. He fears me. He follows me. Satan says, ah, I really have my doubts. I have my doubts because you've been really good to him. And I think if you took that goodness away, he'd show that he really doesn't fear you. He just likes you for your things. God says, let me show you. Let me show you. So it's not that Job becomes faithful because he goes through these things. He shows himself to be a true believer. That's what we read in some of those passages earlier. The trials that come into our life, the tribulations that come into our life, they show our faith to be genuine. It tests our faith and shows it to be genuine. So part of the reason that God allows us to suffer is to show others, and if no other reason, to show the spiritual world, the satanic world, that our faith is real. To show that our faith is real, because Satan says, I don't really have anything to go off of. You say that he's faithful, but who wouldn't be faithful? God says, okay, let's put him through some difficult times and show that he's faithful. So part of the reason that God allows us to suffer as Christians, not because he's not good, not because he's failing to be good, is to show that our faith is real. Not that he needs to see it. He knows it's real or not. To show others. To show others that our faith is real. Faith is like a muscle that must be worked out. It's like a muscle that needs to be worked out. It needs to be shown to be true. Psalm 119, verse 67. Psalm 119, we'll start reading verse 67. It says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Thomas says it was good that I went through these times because it increased my faith. I love your law more. I love you more. I trust in you more because you brought me through this. He wants us to be more like Christ on the other side of these trials and difficulties. He wants to show our faith to be true. He wants to increase that faith that already is true. He wants to grow it to be deeper. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we already looked at this passage before. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we, went, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. That no one be moved by these afflictions. Paul says, I don't want you to be shaken in afflictions. I don't want you to be like what Satan thinks. That your faith is based on God's blessing. Don't be moved in afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. This isn't Satan's suggestion. I don't think Satan is the one 
that suggested this to God that Job should go through difficult times. God destined it. God destined for Satan to come to him and ask him for this because God had the intention to grow Job's faith. Paul says you're destined for for suffering. It's not Satan's idea, it's God's idea. God wants to grow your faith. He wants to show your faith to be genuine. Faith answers the question, will we trust him no matter what? The question that Satan asks, the question that, the question that other people would ask is, will you trust God no matter what? Our faith answers that question. When we go through difficult times, we answer that question, that yes, that yes, my faith is genuine, my faith is true, and I'll trust him through anything. I think it's important to note, too, that the persecution seems to increase in relationship to Paul praying for their increased faith. You see that? And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, I'm praying that your faith will increase. Then he writes and says, I hear you guys are still going through persecution, even greater persecution. And he may have even felt a sense of, I've got to thank God for that because I pray that your faith would increase, and he's increasing it through your increased persecution. He prays for increased faith. Things seem to get worse, but overall their faith is increasing just like he prayed. How do we allow God's goal to be accomplished in us? The first thing, trust in his goodness. Trust in his goodness. View difficulties as a way for God to grow, teach, and strengthen. We talked about this earlier. We don't want to just weather the storm. We don't want to just sit back and endure it until it's over with. We want to overcome it. We want to take difficulties and trials and tribulations and maybe one day persecutions and allow them to be used by God in our life to increase our faith. So I challenged the guys on Thursday. I said, when good circumstances come into your life, when bad circumstances come into your life, don't praise God strictly for blessing you and don't praise God strictly for the fact that it could be worse. Intentionally try to figure out what does God want to teach me in the midst of his blessing? What does God want to teach me in the midst of my suffering? What is he trying to do to make me like Jesus in this situation? Praise him for the blessing. Praise him that it could be worse and he's not allowing it to be worse. But overall, ultimately, try to determine what does God want to teach me? How can I grow in the midst of blessing? How can I grow in the midst of suffering? Trust in his goodness, knowing that he's got favorable intent for you as an end goal. And then secondly, trust in his justice. And that's what we'll see next week. Trust in his justice. The way that we weather and overcome the trials and difficulties in our life, the way that we allow God's goal to be accomplished and not Satan's goal, is we trust in his goodness and we also trust in the fact that God is just and he will deal with sin. He will deal with oppressors, oppression. He'll deal with those when he returns. And we'll look at that passage next week. Application for us today, and then we'll be done. First off, we must be faithful to praise God for the sanctification of the church. That's what Paul did. He praised God that this church was growing, and then he praised God by boasting about this church to others. We can do the same thing. We can praise God for the growth that he's giving individuals in our church, and we can brag on people in this church as they're growing in their faith to other people in giving credit to God for it. As we focus on the growth of others, what it does is it encourages us knowing that God's going to do the same thing in us. If he's working in somebody else's life, it's assurance that he's going to work in your life as well. 
Remember 1 Thessalonians 5. He's praying for sanctification, and he says, praise God, because he's the one that's going to do it in you. Secondly, we should be comforted by the growth of others. Or I just said that. We should be comforted by the growth of others. It assures us that God will do the same to us. And then lastly, what you've got in your notes. How will I pursue growth in 2013? We must be faithful to pursue growth as we move into this new year. What plans do you have? And we started off talking about today. The fact that we have a new year that we're starting. It gives us time of reflection. And we're already a few days into this. But it gives us time of reflection. What do I want to see happen in my life this year? How do I want to grow in my life this year? Now, I've already shared with you at the Christmas party, I've got intent to read 24 books this year. That's one step that I want to make in making sure that I grow this year. I want to read those books. And you may have picked up on the fact that in in the topics that those seem to cover, I want to be more mission-minded in my own life this year. I want to lead my family. I want to lead Lauren and AJ into being a more mission-minded church, especially in the midst of our neighborhood, which is why there were books there about being a good neighbor, uh, being hospitable. I want our house to become a, a place of mission more and more. That's one, that's one area that I want to be intentional about growing in this year. I've got some other things that I want to learn more about in God's Word. I've identified a couple of areas that, that I'm still a little unclear about. But if you sat down and started asking me questions about these topics, and I'm not going to tell you because I don't want you to come ask me questions yet, I would, I would be a little iffy about it. And so I've identified a couple of things. That, hey, I want to know more about this. I, I need to know more about this. I would challenge you to do the same. What are some ways that you want to grow this year? What are some things that you can identify in your own life that you say, it's got to get better here. Like I, I need to pray for God to do something in this area of my life. I need him to grow me here. I want to be, I want to be strengthened in this area. At the end of 2013, I want to be able to look back and say, wow, God grew me in this area. There's some questions that I kind of wrote down that you could maybe jot down too. What will you study? What will you study? What will you read? What will you listen to? Who will you spend time with? Rarely do you just naturally grow spiritually without realizing you're doing it. Rarely do you just happen to start growing without taking some intentional steps to do it. What will you intentionally do this year to make sure that at the end of 2013 you have grown in your faith? You've abounded in your love. This church was doing it, and I think they were being intentional to do it. What will you do this year to make sure that you're growing spiritually? And I leave you with that question today, and I challenge you to to take that question with you this week. Obviously, our church is going to provide opportunities for you to grow, and I encourage you to be a part of as much of it as you can be. Whether it's coming to Peace and Theology Nights, whether it's getting on board with what Denise is doing with the Beth Moore study that she's about to start. Identifying those things that our church is even wanting to make available to you as opportunities for you to grow spiritually this year. And then even as an individual, pursuing some individual goals, some individual things that you can do personally. Saying, I'm gonna, I want to read through this. I want to I study this so that 2013 is not wasted. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this church in Thessalonica that helps set the standard, the example for what you can do in our church here. God, I'm thankful that they are a, an example of a church that grew in their faith, grew in their love, continued to be steadfast despite difficult times. God, I pray that we would be a church that does the same. That as we move into 2013, that we would increase in our faith, both individually and as a church. God, that you'd use our time in the Word on Sundays to increase our faith as a church, but throughout the week that you would use other things that we're doing, times when we can get together in smaller settings, that you would use those times to increase our faith as well. 
And that, God, when we're, at a, when we're alone in our bedroom, about to go to bed or about to wake up, that we can, we can take opportunities to be in the Word so that you can increase our faith. God, we're not praying just for an increase in knowledge about the Bible. We're praying for an increase in love as well. So, God, we want that knowledge, that theology, that doctrine that we increase in this year to produce us a, a love that grows not only in this church but begins to impact the area around us. God, I do pray that you would allow our church to be steadfast and to endure anything that happens in our, in our individual families this year. God, I want to end 2013 with, with every single person that's a part of our church right now still enduring. God, I want to add to that, obviously, but I certainly don't want to lose anybody that's a part of our church right now because they've wandered from the faith. God, I pray that you would test us this year, that we would be ready and, and, and willing and able to accept whatever you bring into our life this year. Because we do want our faith increase, and God, we recognize in the passages that we've looked at this year that, or today that, that you're going to use things this year that, that aren't necessarily desirable to show our faith to be true, to grow our faith. And so, God, we're praying for increased faith, knowing that that probably means difficult times ahead. So, God, I'm praying that our church will endure that. We'll be faithful to the end. God, I pray that you'd call each one of these individuals to, um, to the discipline of, of making a plan for their own personal growth this year as well. God, that we would use this fresh start of 2013 to be intentional about growing in our faith and our love and our hope. God, I pray that you would continue the work that you've started in the lives of each one of these individuals, that you would bring it to completion according to your timing and will. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Any questions or, I mean, still early, any questions or thoughts about what we've looked at today, anything that wasn't clear or anything that I can help understand better before we go today? Well, we know they're being hit with, with an increase in false doctrine for sure, and that's maybe not physical persecution, but it's definitely challenges to their faith. And that's something that he doesn't specifically have to address in the first letter that becomes a point of focus and attention in the second letter. They've also got people that he's having to caution them. He says, if you start getting letters that seem to be from us that contradict this, don't believe it, because there were people that were attacking the apostles' foundation in that church, people that were acting as, um, uh, they were trying to present themselves as Paul or either as somebody like Paul. And so that definitely increased. That's something that we can see in Second Thessalonians that was becoming a greater problem that was definitely a danger to their faith. So we don't necessarily have physical persecution maybe that increased that we know of from the text, but we do see as, a, as an increase in persecution as far as False teachers trying to come in and destroy the church. Satan trying to use deceptive doctrine to confuse and to potentially hinder the growth of that church. Other questions or maybe thoughts that you just want to add to that that you were kind of thinking as we were studying through that?
Yeah, well, I mean, if they're if they're definitely a Christian, then they definitely will come back. I think. Um, I think that the Holy Spirit lives inside of them. The Holy Spirit um, won't allow them to continue to wander from the faith. I think as a father disciplines his son, that God the Father will discipline that person to bring them back. Um, if they're not a believer and they walk away from the faith, um, they still may get saved one day. They still may actually get the gospel, genuinely become converted, and begin to follow Jesus for the rest of their life. So it's not a, well, if you make that choice, you're done forever. Like you can never come back or you can never actually get saved because you tried it and, and, and didn't get it. Um, it's just an indication that there's a lot of times people will respond. They'll, they'll get excited. They have uh, a Sunday morning experience or a camp experience. They say, oh, I want to do that. My friends are doing that. Baptize me too. Oh, I want to learn things. And then it just kind of wears off of them, and, and they, they don't want it anymore. And, and Jesus says to be prepared for that. Know that that's going to happen at times. Um, and it just shows that they never really were saved. But, yeah, they can... If they're saved, they will come back. They may potentially walk away for a time or a season, but through the discipline of the Lord come back, or they may actually get saved for real one day and come back. And and, and I would also say if... To be having those thoughts probably shows that that's not you because the person who who does that falls more in line to the guy who's just completely blinded to his sin, is not even thinking about his sin, whereas the sensitivity that you're saying that you kind of have of, oh, I don't want to be that guy, probably shows that you're not that guy because the Holy Spirit is, is cautioning you and saying, let's don't be that guy together. You know, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to protect you from being that guy. Yeah, yeah. And, and and the Bible warns us as genuine believers, the Bible warns us to not be that guy. And God uses warnings to make sure that we don't be that guy. So you might be prone to be the rocky ground, but by the warning in Scripture, you don't become the rocky ground because you read it and you respond to it and say, I'm not going to allow tribulation to choke it out of me. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sophope.org. Again, that's www.sophope.org.